last Friday night, two days ago, Amy and I were sitting on our front porch, as we do many mornings, sometimes having coffee or sit out there in the evening and like to just sit outside there and uh, kind of reminisce on the day and, uh, you know, think about tomorrow. And uh, as we're sitting there Friday night, enjoying the nice warm evening, Amy says, what's that in the bushes behind you? Where? She's over there, listen. Listen for a few minutes, didn't hear anything. All of a sudden she says, there it is. So I turn around again. I said, I'm not sure what that is. Where's it at exactly? In that flower pot right beside you. There's a good-sized flower pot. Inside it we normally put a little smaller flower and sit it up on a brick inside there or something. So I listened very carefully, and sure enough, there was something inside that pot. I knew both those pots, though, the big pots, had holes on the sides of them, good-sized holes for the water to drain out. So as only a man would do, I said, Amy, don't worry about it. (laughs) Well, Amy was curious to find out what it was. So she got up, walked over there, looked looked in there, and figured out that it was a little lizard. Wasn't that little, though. It was a good-sized lizard. And um, and, it didn't really frighten her. Obviously, it didn't bother me either because I wasn't going to do anything about it. But you know, for about the next 10 or 15 minutes, it occupied our conversation. Well, I wonder if that lizard knows how to get out. When she was over there looking down the pot, you know what? She was talking to the lizard, too. (laughs) The the little hole's right over there. Go over there, little lizard. I'm not sure if he understood or not. I'm pretty sure that the lizard wasn't saved either, though, so we (laughs) had a tuning. We talked and talked about how that lizard could find his way out of there. And how that lizard got into there in the first place. I'm sure he got in there probably going that hole that he was ultimately going to go out of. And so finally, after much discussion and conversation, Amy went inside and got herself some more. I think we were drinking iced tea that night and brought it back out and sat down beside me. And I said, look at there. There's the lizard right there beside the pot. And he walked off. As I pondered the 15 minutes or so that we took talking about that and thinking about that, I thought to myself, there's got to be a preaching illustration somewhere in this little story. (laughs) So guess what you're getting this morning? That lizard needed to find his way out of that pot. He got in that way. How is he going to get out? You know, God has this incredible plan for you and I. He has this incredible vision for your life, a purpose for our lives as well. And God wants us to walk on that path and walk on that way and know where God would have us to go. There's no place sweeter than right in the center of God's will. God desires for you and I to chase after that purpose, to come to figure out exactly where I need to go, God. Where are my next steps? The Bible tells us very clearly in Timothy, he says, redeem the time. You know what that means? Figure out what God would use you for today. Figure out your purposes today. It also says to walk circumspectly. You know what that means? It means in walking such a way that you're walking carefully and making sure every foot goes exactly where God would have your foot go. 
There's so many landmines out there. There's so many things that distract us. There's so many things that the, the enemy would use to get us off course. But you and I need to have a God-given, Holy Spirit-driven desire to walk where God would have us to walk, to go where God would have you and I to go, to make sure, God, am I making this move in my life based on what you're telling me to do or based on some personal feeling? I've heard, heard different pastors. I've even heard it from a few of our folks in the church here that uh, they share a lot of times that uh, sometimes we look at church like a kind of a Burger King. We go into Burger King and kind of want it our way. Well, there's nothing wrong with having your, your desires and having some of those things, but at the same time, what is God's way first? What would God have us do in our life? As your pastor, I carry a heavy burden that when I stand up in this pulpit, that I stay out of God's way, that I become an empty vessel, that I stand as an empty vessel that God can flow through me. Why do I have that burden? Because I want God to speak to all of us. As I prepare the messages for this service, I spend a lot of times four and five weeks beforehand planning it out a little bit to know where I'm going to go, and then I open a file. And as God gives me thoughts, he gives me different scriptures, gives me the illustrations, I put in that file. So I begin preparing way ahead of time. But then the week before, obviously I do it. What's my desire? To speak what God would have me to speak to us, you and I. And as I prepare those messages, you know what God's doing? He's speaking to me first. He's stepping on my toes first. He's stepping on me to, let I, to make sure that I understand what I'm going to preach. I'm a firm believer that if it doesn't touch my heart that way, more than likely it's not going to touch your heart either. And so I'm praying that way. And I want to remind you for just a minute because I want to continue this thought here in a second. On Easter Sunday we talked about what? Remember Thomas, right? Remember Thomas? Everybody claims he was a doubting Thomas, but I believe he was a man that wanted to make sure he was absolutely uh, embedded and also engaged with Jesus Christ. He asked the questions many times that everybody else was thinking. Do you know what he wanted to see? He wanted to see the marks of Calvary on Jesus. I need to see the marks of Calvary on Jesus before I believe. When he saw that, he believed, he said, you are the true living God. You know what happened at that moment? He had the marks of Calvary on him because he had just totally given his life all the way, sold out to Jesus Christ. It begs the question of you and I, do I carry the marks of Calvary? Last week, Remember what we talked about? Impossible things. We talked about the crossing at the Red Sea. How God parted the water there. Remember the Israelites were concerned about what was us. Here come the Egyptian army and we're backed up against the Red Sea. It's all over for us. Moses, why did you ever lead us out of here? Moses, why did you allow this to happen? God told the people through Moses, he says, just tell them to go forward. But he also told Moses, hey, I'm going to do something marvelous here, but you've got to do something first. You need to hold out your staff over the water, over the Red Sea. God was connecting to Moses that very moment acts of faith with God's omnipotent power. God wants us to act in faith and trust and expect to see God's power. God bless you. Last week I announced that I wanted to shift off of Matthew now for about four weeks. We're going to talk about rebuilding the walls. You say, well, pastor, rebuilding the walls of what? 
First and most important, the walls of our heart. Okay? We need to all self-examine our own heart and say, where am I at with Christ? You know, it's easy to point to other people. In fact, the Bible even tells us, why would you worry about the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a log in your own? It, 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 it behooves you and I, if we desire to be right in the center of God's will, to understand our purpose in life, to understand who we are first and foremost. God wants us to do that. He wants you and I to understand who we are in Him, not who I am in me. I'm not really interested anymore at this point in my life who Gary is. I'm really not. I'm interested in seeing Christ in my life. I want to see that. Do I fall short? Absolutely. I've acknowledged that several times before, numerous times before. We all fall short. Do you know what God wants us to do? He doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to get up the next morning and say, I'm going to do a better job today than I did yesterday. So we're going to talk about four huge themes. Nehemiah is filled with incredible godly knowledge about being a leader, about standing for the cause of Christ against all the odds out there. But Nehemiah, we're going to see four building blocks. We've got one right here. We're going to talk about prayer. And as we enter in and read this scripture this morning, I want you to hear this. As I studied for prayer messages, I'm always looking for something that I've never seen before. Why? Because I'm hoping that maybe you haven't seen that before either. Some of you have, some of you haven't. But I believe there's going to be a profound thought this morning about prayer that's going to touch all of our hearts and we realize, man, I can take my prayer life up to a whole other level just by pondering this one thought. We're going to see it this morning as we read Nehemiah. If you have your books, uh, your Bibles with you this morning or your, uh, your iPhones, flip with me, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 1. Stand with me, this will, if you will, this morning out of reverence and respect to the reading of God's holy word. For the sake of time this morning, I'm just going to read a few verses here, but you know, it's worthy of all of us reading the whole first chapter of Nehemiah sometime today and listen to the beautiful prayer that uh, Nehemiah uh, prayed. But we're going to focus in on what happened in Nehemiah's life when he heard what had happened in Jerusalem. It shares in the first couple of verses there that Nehemiah uh, is a servant of the king. He's living in Shushan, uh, which is the capital there um, of, of Babylon. And then verse 3 it says here, I'm sorry, the, the capital of uh, Assyria. Verse 3, look at that with me if you wish. And then he said to me, and this is the uh, survivor that came from captivity concerning Jerusalem. He said, then he said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Our focus verse number four there, listen again. It says, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before God. Let's pray. Father, may you bless the reading of your holy word. Speak to our hearts this morning, Father, as we look at your word, Father. Lord, show us something in your holy word this morning that has each one of our names on it. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The nation of Judah had turned its back on God. Totally turned its back on God. Over and over, God sent prophets. He sent Isaiah there. He sent Jeremiah there. God was threatening to send great calamity if they did not repent and turn their lives back towards God. They failed to do it. Over and over, Jeremiah wept about this. 
You know, because they would not turn back to God, God sent what He said He's going to send. He sent calamity. He sent the Babylonians into Judah and carried them all off. Obliterated that nation. Carried them off into captivity. The king of Sirius, Sirius, I'm sorry, King Sirius of Persia, after 70 years of captivity, overthrew Babylon. And he allowed 50,000 Jews to return back to Jerusalem. He allowed them to go back and repopulate their capital. When those Jews got back there, they realized we need to rebuild the temple. Solomon's temple had been destroyed. So they rebuilt it. Not as nice as Solomon's temple, but rebuilt it. But after they built that temple, they pretty much quit. And for 90 years, that city, the holy city, Jerusalem, laid in ruins. Moral decay. They lost their faith. They were living in desolation, you know what, and they accepted it as normal. This just is going to be normal. This is how life is going to be. This is as good as life is going to get. Not worried about anything better. You know what God was saying to the nation of Israel there in Jerusalem? He said, I got so much more for you. You know what God tells you and I every day? I got so much more for you. You can't even begin to imagine what I have for you. He tells us over and over, I have the plans for you. God has this incredible life for each and every one of us. God had so much more for Israel. The question for you and I, can one man make a difference? Absolutely. Nehemiah did. And we're going to look at Nehemiah for a second here this morning and kind of figure out what was it about Nehemiah that made him the man that God chose to make a difference in the nation of Israel. Nehemiah was a man. It's a story told in 1984 about a fellow by the name of Bob Geldof. Bob Geldof was a musician. I'm sure you've all heard of him. He was a singer and a musician in the Bloomtown Rats. You heard that one? I hadn't either. But Bob Geldof came home one day after having a very, very bad day at work. Turned on the TV, and on the TV he saw these incredibly sad images of all these children and all these people dying in Ethiopia because of famine and starvation. He sat there, he was mesmerized with that TV show, that TV program, watching it there. But he was crushed. He was absolutely devastated. He was enraged as well. He had deep pain because of what he saw on the TV. He began asking himself, well, what can I do? What can I possibly do? Well, he was a record producer. He was also a musician and part of that band, as I mentioned. He decided, I'm going to try to make an album. And so he began making phone calls to all kinds of huge, very famous musicians. He gathered them all together and he made a huge album. It was called Feed the World. And that album quickly went to the top of the charts and made millions of dollars. But they said, well, this isn't enough. You know what I want to do? I want to host a live concert at Wimbledon, of all places. He named it Live Aid. Once again, dozens and dozens of top performers around the world came to support because they bought into the picture that Bob Gilder shared with them about starvation and famine. They gathered together and had that concert and raised once again millions. The question for you and I today, what can I do? What can I do? We're talking about rebuilding the walls and some of the things I want to see very quickly here this morning. First and foremost is Nehemiah had a brokenness for the glory of God. He had a brokenness for the glory of God. The second thing that Nehemiah had is he had a passion for prayer. An incredible passion for prayer. And the third thing, because Nehemiah had a brokenness for the things of God, he had a passion for prayer, he had a willingness to answer God's call for the need. 
He was willing to do what it took. I want to think about brokenness for just a second. Nehemiah was broken for the glory of God. It says in verse 4 there, So it was when I heard these things, this is Nehemiah speaking, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before God of heaven. Nehemiah was broken over the complacency of the nation of Israel. Wasn't there complacency about building those walls or fixing the doors? Nehemiah was broken about their complacency towards God. They were just complacent. There was an apathetic attitude. They lived in a culture where the new norm was to turn their back on God, not to worry about God. Because I got a roof over my head, I got food, and I'm doing okay. They were content to be marginalized with God. There was no zest. There was no brokenness with God. Listen very carefully. Nehemiah's concern wasn't about the social concern there for Jerusalem. It wasn't about the physical concern for Jerusalem. Nehemiah's concern was about the spiritual concern of Jerusalem. He was concerned in anguish over these things. It says that he sat down and he wept and he mourned for many days. The question for you and I this morning is where is the anguish, where is the brokenness for the state of the church today? And I'm not talking just about Beaverdam. I'm talking about the church at large in America today. Where is the passion and the brokenness for God, for God's glory? You know, I, I think we've all seen many, many times and heard many, many times that why we're here. Why did God save us? Well, we know the answer, the, the stock textbook answer is for God's glory. God saved us for his glory. God wants us to bring glory to him. Well, I want to go one step further. Do you believe that God wants you and I to protect his glory as well? You want, to, you, want to, you want to just imagine that for a second, that God wants us to protect his glory as well? You know, we look at all these issues going on in the social realm of America today. You know, we can list a whole bunch of them, but think about the abortion pro-life issue for just a second. You know, that's a huge, very serious issue. It, 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 it should run against yours and my grain. You know why they're promoting that? The, the people that would promote abortion and pro-choice? They might not say this, but the reason they're promoting this whole social issue that goes contrary to God's will is they want to destroy the image of God. They don't want to give glory to God. They don't want to even begin to think. If you talk to them about this, they'd probably attack you today, that God creates us. We're created by a Heavenly Father. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. God knew us before we were formed in our mother's womb. That God has showed us here in this life, in this, in this holy book as Christians, that life is precious. Well, that's a baby in the womb. It's not a fetus. Fetus is Latin for baby. It's a baby. Call it what we all call it in America today. It's a baby. Where is the anguish in America today? For the condition of our hearts as Christians. For our nation. For the world. Almost to the day, one year ago, on April 19, 2016, Target announced that it was going to kind of support the transgender thing and said men are now allowed in women's bathrooms in Target stores. You know, I think we were all kind of shocked that they're kind of not only supporting that, but almost celebrating it. Well, the very next day, the American Family Association came out and said we're launching a petition against that. We don't believe in that. We think it's totally wrong. We want to protect our little girls and our little boys going to the bathrooms with an adult of the opposite natural-born gender. 
One year later, almost to the day, they've been able to gather 1.5 million signatures on a piece of paper. I thought this was kind of interesting too, that you realize that in one year that Target stock dropped 35%. Where's our anguish? Are we anguished over that as well? Are we anguished about what's going on in America today? Think about this. This shocked me. One of our church members sent this to me this week. said, last year the United Methodist Church, in their general conference, their annual conference, convened to clarify their denominational position on human sexuality. They, they wanted to clear this up. They wanted to figure out exactly where do we stand here on human sexuality. And they're talking about homosexuality. They're talking about transgender. They wanted to figure it out. Well, they met in the big council there, their big leadership group, and you know what they figured out? <clears throat> Nothing. They said, we're going to defer the vote. They established another commission to further examine the issues. Are you kidding me? The Methodist church, do they not believe in Jesus Christ and the Holy Bible? You and I should not take a second to realize, hey, I don't need a, a, a split second to figure out the issue here. What I believe, what we're going to stand for is a faith. God has called you and I not to stand for these things. Where's God's church today? As we look around, it's arguable that maybe the church is mostly powerless today. We also realize that the church really isn't making much impact on the world. We see more of the world coming into church and impacting the church than we see the church going out into the world and impacting the world. How come? How come? Let me ask you a question. We talked about Jeremiah, I mean, I'm sorry, Nehemiah, anguishing over the fact that Jerusalem was in decay and in ruins and in spiritual deprivation. He was anguishing over that. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? You know, it's a word we don't really talk about. I haven't talked about it much before. But I want you to think about the word anguish. Because I'm going to share with you in just a couple of minutes, but I believe that's what's missing from our prayers. And I'm not talking about anguishing about something here that's going on in my life because God said I'm going to give you peace that past understanding. I'm talking about anguishing something that's breaking God's heart. I'm bothered that our nation no longer looks to God as a whole. There's still a lot of Christians in America, but where are they? Truly the silent majority. When we search the Scripture, don't miss this thought this morning. You'll find when God is determined to recover a ruined situation, you know what he does? He shares his own anguish with a praying person. And then he baptizes that person with that anguish. That's what happened to Nehemiah. God said, Nehemiah, I'm going to use you. Nehemiah, i got something big coming down your hallway. Why? Because he knew Nehemiah was a praying man. He knew Nehemiah believed in God. He knew that Nehemiah had a heart towards God. Even though he had a cush job, he had a heart towards God. God found that man that believed in Nehemiah. God used him to restore that ruin. Nehemiah broke down when he heard the situation in Jerusalem. God baptized him with anguish. He wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed day and night for four months. Why didn't the other men 
All the men in Jerusalem. All the men there where Nehemiah was at. Why didn't they do something about it? Why didn't God use them? Because there was no sign of anguish in those men. There was no anguish. There was no prayer. All was in ruins. Does it matter to you and I that the church has basically lost its power? Does it matter to you and I that uh, we don't really allow what's going on around us to soak in? Are we so numb to the world that we're not heartbroken for the things that break God's heart? What do you see when you look at your life? Do you see that God wants to do something with your life? Do you expect that? Do you honestly believe that God wants to use you to do something for Him? That God could use little old me to do something really for Him? That's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to take ordinary people and do something extraordinary. The component, I believe, to our prayer life that's going to make a difference is when we allow God to break our heart. I believe with all my heart that God's not going to break, not, God's not going to use somebody mightily until He breaks them mightily. Think about Peter for just a second. Remember old Peter? Bragging, Jesus, they'll never kill you. I'll die before that happens. Really? Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. There's no way, no way. Well, Peter did exactly that. Peter denied Jesus Christ three times before the rooster crowed. The Bible tells us that Peter went out and wept. I believe if you were to analyze Peter's weeping that night, he was in anguish as well. Because he realized what he'd just done. The greatest thing that ever happened to me, Peter's saying, I just denied. How could that happen? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Listen very carefully. Jesus Christ knew he was going to do that. He knew he was going to deny him. Jesus Christ saw him across the courtyard that night as Peter was denying him. They caught eyes and Peter realized what he'd done and it says Peter went out and wept. Well, Jesus rose from the grave and he told the apostles, meet me in Galilee and Peter too. He mentioned Peter by name because he realized that he needed to break Peter. He needed Peter to have some anguish in his heart for the things that are about God before he could really use him. God is waiting for you and I to anguish over some of the things that we see that we realize that are breaking God's heart. Are we anguishing over that? You know, Nehemiah was a man of passionate prayer as well. The book of Nehemiah begins with prayer and ends with prayer. Nehemiah also prayed 12 huge prayers throughout the book of Nehemiah. If you want to study prayer, read Nehemiah. Nehemiah had a great burden. When God brings a great burden to the heart of a godly man, great things happen. Did you hear that? When God brings a great burden to the heart of a godly man, great things happen. You may be asking this morning, well, how do I, how do I figure out a burden? Be still and know that he is God. So down for just a couple of minutes and look around. 
Don't accept what we see on TV. Don't accept what we read in the news. Don't accept what's happening around us as the new normal. I don't want to live this new normal. I want what God wants. I don't want to adapt my life and change my life and twist my life all around to fit into this narrative that's going on in this world right now. I want to be God's man. I want to be used of God to do great things. You know, Nehemiah had a willingness to be used to answer God's need. He wept, he fasted, he prayed, and then he went to the king and said, I'm going to be used to do this. He asked the king to support him. Great life-changing moments happen in the ordinary times of our life. It's happening all around us. Almost daily, maybe, there's an opportunity for you and I to have a burden for somebody, something, something going on out there that's breaking God's heart. There are hurting, crushed, brutalized people all around us every day. I think they wake up in the morning and wondering if it's even worth getting up out of bed that day. Why? Because my life is so sorry or so messed up or so sad or so depressing. But they do anyway. Because they have to go to their job and make some money so they can survive and eat for the day. You know what God's looking from you and I? To have a burden for people around us. Even the ones that might be mean to us. Even the ones that might come against us. Why? I want to pray for that person. I want that person to see Jesus in me. Yeah, he came against Jesus Christ. He could have struck back, could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't do it. Great life-changing moments happen in the ordinary times. Ten years ago, my second oldest daughter was about 13 years old. We were sitting around the table at home, and we were pondering the idea of adopting Jonathan. And um, everybody's kind of weighing in and giving their thoughts. And old dad, in his wisdom, told the kids, this isn't like getting a puppy, guys. This is a little boy. He's going to be your brother. And uh, he's going to be here forever with us. And um, so as we're talking, all of a sudden Abby says, uh, i got a question to ask, Dad. I say, yeah, Abby. She said, uh, if we don't adopt Jonathan, who's going to tell him about Jesus? I want you to think about that. You've had those experiences with your kids too. Think about how God puts burdens on our children's life when they know Christ. Children ask questions. Isn't that amazing? We don't ask many questions as adults because I've already got it figured out. I already know these things. I think one of the things that can happen in our prayer life, one of the things that we can begin realizing greater anguish for the things of God in our heart about it was to begin asking questions. Begin looking at the world kind of in awe and wondering and imagining and thinking how God could use me today because my heart is anguishing for the things of God. God put Nehemiah in Sushan, serving the king. Just like he put Rahab in Jericho, just like he put Joseph in Egypt, just like he put Daniel in Babylon, just like he put Paul in Rome, listen very carefully, just like he put you and I right here in this time, in this place. How would God use you and I? How will I make myself available for God to use me? Dale Moody once said, and I love this, in fact, my wife got it engraved and put it upon a little plaque for me. 
Dale Moody said this, the world is yet to see what one man totally committed to God can do. The world is yet to see what one man totally, or woman totally committed to God can do. Ponder that possibility. Imagine if I really, really committed my life to God. How could he use me? I want to share this last thought and, uh, in conclusion here. Amy and I had the privilege this last week to go up to New York. And we're going up there to see a college friend, and he was conducting a choir and band at the Carnegie Hall. Never been there before, so got invited up there. And, but um, while we were up there, we had the opportunity to tour around a little bit. We were just up there for two days, in fact, less than 48 hours. But um, went over to the 9-11 memorial. In fact, I got a picture uh, that um, Doug's going to put up on the wall here. Michael F. Judge. You know, I, I was taking a whole bunch of pictures, and I didn't even realize I got that name until I got back here. You know who Michael Judge is? He was a chaplain with the fire department. The call went out that morning for him, for the whole unit to respond to the trade towers because they'd been hit by an airplane. You know how he was a Catholic friar, Catholic priest. You know what his attire was normally? A brown long robe and a fire helmet and sandals. Well, he showed up at the base of the trade towers that morning. And they just carried out a policeman. He went over and began administering last rites to that man. He was still living, but it wouldn't get me long. They didn't feel like he was going to make it. So he administered last rites there at the base of the trade tower stood up and began walking towards the entrance of the building and debris came down, crushed them, killed them instantly. Don't know if it's accurate or not, but uh, Michael Judge was ledgered down as the first fatality of the first responders, 9-11 that day. The Bible very clearly tells us this. No greater love, no greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for another. Are you and I burdened to give our lives away? Most of us will never have to do what Michael Judge did that way or the police officers in our room or the firemen in our room. But we'll do the things that God calls us to do. Are we willing to do those? Are we willing to give our lives away? Jesus Christ gave his life for you and I that we might have life. You know what he's asking? Be willing to give it back. Don't need to give it back to have that salvation. The salvation's a gift. It's by grace. But because he gave his life for me, I am eternally destined now to live in heaven. And I want to give back to him whatever meager things I can give, all the way up including everything I can give. God has called you and I out for a very, very specific time. We're living in hard times. Not too hard for God, though, when we anguish over the things that God has called you and I to be about. Let's pray. Father, we pray right now, Lord, uh, for this time, this most precious time of our service, Father, when we recommit our lives, Father, when we begin to ponder some of your words here, Father, the life of Nehemiah, Father, and as we think about the... uh, 
the four building foundations, Father, we're going to be talking about. Father, help us to understand today that we need to pray. You tell us if we call upon you, you're going to answer our prayers and show us great and mighty things. You tell us that we have not because we ask not. You tell us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Father, over and over you tell us in your holy word to pray without ceasing, to meditate on your word day and night. Father, we pray right now, Lord, that we would be a praying people. Father, I thank you now for this time of invitation, Father, when we respond to your holy word. Lord, we love you so very much. Father, we thank you once again for first loving us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking to some folks this last week about insurance policies. I know a couple of you are in the insurance business, but talking about life insurance. You know, I don't know if one of them was a Christian or not, but I took the opportunity to tell them, you know, what the greatest life insurance policy that's ever been written. You know what it is? It was written upon that cross. It guarantees my life. It gives me riches beyond measure. I can't have a big enough life insurance policy that's going to give me more than what Jesus Christ did upon that cross. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't have that life insurance policy, you may have a good one at home, you may have $100,000 or half a million dollars, I don't know what, but do you have an eternal life policy that is going to give treasures that are endless and eternal?